0: Welcome to From Embers to Excellence, a podcast that explores the many facets of leadership from the perspectives of some amazing people. We discuss the triumphs and failures that have shaped our lives and our leadership philosophies. It isn't whether we fail that defines us. But when we do fail, how do we respond? Leaders dust off the ashes and use their failures as fuel to work harder and as lessons to come back wiser and stronger, more resilient, more determined, and more committed to excellence. And now, here is your host, Dave Hollenbach.
1: Today I'm talking with Donna Michaels, author of Courageously Broken, a Navy veteran, a veteran of eight years, a veteran law enforcement officer. I believe you've been in law enforcement for the last 20 years or so?
2: That's correct. Yep. We were
1: just talking a little bit about your book. Uh, I've read about halfway through, and it's uh, it's pretty amazing the life that you've had, and and you've survived quite a bit. And I'm looking forward to finishing it. I was wondering if you'd feel comfortable sharing some of the some of the more I don't know life shaping events that uh, that you write about.
2: I can do that. Like I tell people, they ask me what it's about, you know, and I don't want to go. Oh, it's about me because you know, it sounds so narcissistic. But it 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 was as I mentioned before to you. It was kind of a book by accident, you know. I've I've told people throughout the years, you know, about my life and some of the things that I've been through, and and they're like, man, you should write a book one day. And I just kind of laughed it off. But I was searching for some answers that I really really needed needed doing some soul searching. It was suggested to me that I start journaling, and in the journaling it became a book and i i went to my best friend and i asked him you know hey what do you think about this and he told me that if i could find a place where i felt comfortable sharing my story that i could probably help other people well after 20 years in law enforcement and you know as from being a first responder you know we don't go into this line of work to get rich or you know for anything i mean it's a calling where you you really want to make the world a better place you want to help people so i felt like if i could find the courage to Share my story and and it helped other people. then maybe I haven't gone through all these things for no reason. You know, maybe I could make a positive out of a negative. I came from a, a fairly abusive childhood, not sexually abused or anything like that. But my father was uh, a paranoid schizophrenic, really nasty, nasty temper. And if he had convinced himself or the voices in his head had convinced himself that, you know, you were up to no good, then you were going to pay consequences for something and you had no idea what it was. He was extraordinarily controlling as a lot of people like that are. He would count the mileage on not just my car because I was a teenager. I get it. Parents do things like that. But my mom was held equally accountable and she was the, uh, the breadwinner of the home. My dad of their third year marriage, he only worked seven years. He couldn't keep a job. he'd get he'd lose his temper, he'd get fired. You know, and then it was government contract work, which made it worse because you get blacklisted and then somebody's got to do you a favor to get another job. And he worked at NASA. So I grew up here in Florida. And then in eighty uh, three when my mom uh, left the hospital and I was getting ready to finish middle school, they decided that they didn't want to live in Florida anymore. They bought some land up way up in the mountains of North Carolina, and we moved up there our closest neighbor other than my grandparents were was about 15 miles away uh, we were tucked up in the mountains gravel dirt roads ice storm come through you were snowed in it was rough in it no electricity it was it was crazy you know i would do anything i remember they would always want me to go out you know help split wood and stack wood and i was a girly girl and i didn't want to get my hands dirty i'd be like i'll clean toilets i'll wash this, i'll do anything just don't make me go do cut wood i don't want to stack wood So needless to say, when I decided to join the Navy, it was kind of a surprise to everybody that the girly girl wanted to go in the military. Found out later they were laying bets on how long I'd last. And to everyone's surprise, I I made it through boot camp, which was pretty much a surprise to everyone because they didn't think I'd get that far. And then I got to, I went to a school in Mississippi, which was only five weeks long. And then, uh, ended up with orders to the Azores, which I had never even heard of. And I ended up there. And I'm, I'm I'm leaving details out on purpose because it's all in the book, obviously. Right. But uh, I got to the Azores where I wasn't properly prepared for the things that came. I had gone to Catholic school as a kid. I was very sheltered. My mom raised me that girls don't fight, girls don't cuss, be a lady, which for the most part I was. But I was also extraordinarily naive. I wasn't raised to... I was just... I wasn't raised to trust everyone, but I wasn't raised to not trust everyone. It was a conversation that just never happened. So I went in assuming, you know, anybody that goes in the military is a good person. All my family had been in the military. My grandpa, all of his brothers, I I was raised extremely patriotic. I was the first female to go in, in my family. All I wanted to do was, was adventure and see the world and get paid doing it and hopefully learn some skills that I could use later in life. I just wanted to serve my country really is what it was all about. And that's as far as I could see. So when I got to the Azores, uh, it was a rude awakening for me. I never even realized it until someone else pointed it out. Actually, in the last couple of years, I ran into someone, believe it or not, here in Florida, who I worked with in the Azores. He's an Air Force guy and he ended up retiring out of Patrick Air Force Base. But we talked about it and he's like, you know, you don't, you don't get it? And I'm like, what? And he goes... Every time a female arrived, he goes, we couldn't wait to get a look at her. I'm like, why? And he goes, did you not notice the ratio? And it never even occurred to me. The ratio was literally like 50 to one 50 men for every female. And in the Azores, it's so the civilians, when you got off base, was so primitive they literally still they they still traveled by donkey and cart men would court girls like in the old days they'd be sitting up on the balcony and the boyfriend would be standing in the street and the father would be sitting on the front porch so the portuguese girls weren't even allowed to talk to the military men the military men didn't stand a chance with the local girls. So all I had was the military girls. That was something I wasn't prepared for. Because you talk about feeling like a piece of meat. It was uh, it was degrading. But it was only a 15-month tour. I did not enjoy it. It was not a good experience. And you know why, because you've already read past that chapter. And I'm going to leave that for the readers to figure out. I came out of there pretty messed up, pretty broken, psychologically. I got to Panama which was my next duty station. I had this, I, as we were talking before, I'm an adrenaline junkie. Becoming a mom has slowed me way down and I'm glad, or I'd probably be dead by now. Back then, you know, it was whatever, wherever the rush was, that's where I wanted to be. And so I kept telling the detailers, Hey, I want to go. I wanted to go to the middle East because uh, the first Gulf war was going on and they couldn't get me there because women couldn't go to combat back then. This is the uh, early nineties. He said, the closest I can get you to action is Panama. And he said, uh, things are pretty hot down there. You know, we had just had just cause, you know, where they ousted Noriega. Um, we were in deep with the drug wars. So that was about as good as it was going to get for an opportunity for me. So that's where I went. And I ended up at a SEAL unit as a administrative support personnel. And everybody's like, oh, you were just a pencil push. You were just a secretary. And I'm like, and I get it. And that doesn't bother me because I know what the truth is." So I get there and yes, I was a pencil pusher and an admin person, but the way the team, the SEAL teams look at it is it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter if you're the supply clerk, the uh, admin girl who does the payroll and all that, which was me. It doesn't matter if you're, you know, what your job is. If you're, you know, we didn't have janitors, but you could be the janitor. You're still a, a vital member of this team. That's part of getting the mission accomplished. And you got treated as an equal because of that. It had pros and cons the cons were PTing every morning with SEALs. Now, when you haven't been through BUDS and you haven't been physically dedicated to the extreme workouts that these guys do, it's like getting your ass kicked every single morning, right? So I'd be out there on the grinder with these guys, dying doing push-ups, dying doing sit-ups, eight-count bodybuilders, which I think they call burpees now. It's pretty much the same thing. Right. And, you know, for two hours, every morning, every morning, I got there and I was lucky if I could do 10 pushups. When I left three years later, I could do 200 without batting an eye, but it took me three years to get there. You know, something that I can say I once was able to do, <laughs> I'm not as young as I once was. I wasn't an operator, but they taught me how to shoot, which has been very useful as a police officer, obviously. I went into my academy and I didn't tell anybody other than telling people, yeah, I was in the Navy. And they said, what'd you do? And I said, I was a yeoman or, and you know, admin person. They just like, Oh, she was just a secretary. And then we go out on the gun range and i never missed a shot. And I ended up with the plaque and the the trophy at the end of the academy. And, and like, how did, I'm like, seals taught me, what do you want me to tell you? I mean, the best of the best taught me how to shoot. They, you know, I went diving. Um, I got, to do some extraordinarily cool things that most people can't imagine or whatever, get to do. And it was just because I, I worked with them and, and it was very much a, you take care of me and I'll take care of you. And I, and I got it, at first when I got there, area course, I didn't trust anybody because of what had happened. It took time, but a couple of the guys took me under their wing and let it be known pretty quickly that I was their sister. And as long as they were around, nobody was going to mess with me. And they, they earned my trust and they did, they protected me. They, if they saw that I was, we go out, drink into a bar or whatever. And, and they saw that I was in a vulnerable situation that I couldn't even see myself. They were right there. They never left me behind. They saved my ass on a few occasions where I did get myself in a situation where I was out without them. And I got stranded once in the middle of Panama city and they came and got me and snuck me back onto base me out of trouble and you know the stories are in there and they're and they're fun stories that's the thing about the book i mean yeah some bad i've been through some rough stuff you're right and i've been through some stuff that's left some pretty deep scars that have that are going to last a lifetime but at the same token writing the book for me was extremely therapeutic because it also reminded me of all the good things and I realized that while life has been tough, it's a roller coaster and we're all going to have peaks and valleys and we got to enjoy the peaks while we got them because a valley is ahead. It's just a matter of when and we just got to learn how to roll through it, knowing that if we keep our chin up and we keep going, we'll hit another peak. The peak will come.
1: The trauma that you you went through in the Azores how would you say that affected your life moving forward in your relationships and and just daily living cuz
2: I will tell you initially I couldn't you know a decade ago I couldn't have even answered that question I would have said oh, I'm fine I don't know what you're talking about cuz I suppressed it for 28 years which means by suppressing it I was in denial and I did not deal with it and I wasn't aware of how it was affecting me I knew that initially in the in the in the first couple years after it happened, I just really had major trust issues. I mean, I still do, don't get me wrong. I fell in love. Okay. It's in the book. I fell in love. And I look back and I'm like, I put that poor guy through hell. I, I did. I put him through hell. Now you're gonna make me cry. Damn it. Because in hindsight, I realize all the shit crazy things that I put him through was not because of what he was doing. It was because of what I had been through, but I didn't understand because I suppressed it and shoved it down and compartmentalized it and put it in a box that I planned on throwing out to the ocean and never opening again. Sounds great in theory, but it doesn't work, right? So that every time he did something that my crazy brain didn't think was okay, or maybe I didn't, You know how you perform the way you train. So in life you go to have a conversation with a boss or you go to have a conversation with someone and you know, it's not going to be an easy conversation. So you try to rehearse it in your head, how you want this conversation to go so that it will come out the way you plan in your head. So I fell in love with this guy and in my mind at the age of 20, I had an envision of what a good relationship should look like and a way a good boyfriend should act. Mind you, I came from a fucked up family. I never had a good example. (laughs) I never had a good father figure. I didn't have a good example. I had a crazy father who treated my mom and I like shit. So I didn't, I really, I had the fairy tale in my head. That's all I had. So every time he would do something that in my mind wasn't okay, I'd lose my shit on him. And I mean, I put him through hell. God bless him. He he stuck with me because our good times were great. They were fantastic. But then when we hit bad times, we really hit bad times. Believe it or not, we were only together in Panama for eight months, but it seemed like a lifetime because we were together every day. We moved in together. We lived together. We talked about getting married. We talked about spending the rest of our life together. So in my mind, it seemed like an eternity. He got orders, he left Panama, and uh, the goal was that a year later, I would try to get orders to the same area he was going. As you know, that didn't happen. But that is, I look back and I think, I think because of what I went through in the Azores, I put him through hell. Maybe I would have been more trusting. Maybe I would have appreciated him more. Maybe I would have communicated with him better. He's the only person I ever told what happened to me in the Azores. And it happened in the middle of an argument. He said to me, what the hell is wrong with you? Because I was acting crazy. And I blurted it out. It was just a spontaneous, I blurted it out. And he kind of like was taken back by it. I looked at him, I said, and we're never going to talk about it again. That's the end of that and we didn't. He was only 20 years old too. Neither one of us had the life skills or the experience to know how to approach such a serious issue. I told him that's it, we're not talking about it, and he respected my wishes. And that was that. And then I never told anybody again. As far as <sighs> the rest of my life is con- well, so as far as relationships go, I'm 50 years old and I'm never I've never been married. So, you know, there's that. And I I don't know, I don't know that I ever will because I'm doing pretty good on my own. I like my life now. Would I like to go out? I'm like, I just want somebody to go out and hang out with and go to a concert with and have fun with. I don't want to move in. I don't want to get married. I want to keep my bank bank account. They can keep their bank account. I would just like a buddy to go hang out with and have fun with. But, you know, wanting one hand shit in the other, see which one fills up first. That's what my mom always said. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's, I mean, that, that was an old expression my mom would use when I would like, mom, I want, well, want one hand shit in the other, see which one fills up first. And <laughs> so I realized we don't always get what we want. As far as in, in professionally speaking, I have had some phenomenal supervisors that I have, I would go to the end of the earth for, that I would do anything for because they're outstanding leaders. They listen, they are in tune with their people. They are fair. They don't blindside you. They don't backstab you. They don't, you know, take notes behind your back and act like the world is wonderful. And then the next thing you know, you're getting blindsided. I don't do blindsided very well. I don't think anybody does, but I really don't. And then I've had supervisors that were egotistical, chauvinistic assholes. And when you've worked in a male dominated profession, your entire adult life, like I have, I will tell you that in my experience, 30% are average supervisors, they're nothing to write home about. They're not terrible, but they're not great. They're just there 20 to 30% have been really good. And then I'd say the rest have been, well, that's not really fair. I'd say 30 have been assholes. 30 have been average and, you know, a, th- a third, a third, and a third is how I would divide my experience. The assholes are the ones that, their way or the highway, they don't care what you have to say. They will snake in the grass, hold things. I've had, I've had supervisors hold shit over my head just to be as on a, on a power trip. Like, well, you know, we've got this thing over here, but that hasn't gone away yet. So you need to watch your P's and Q's or, you know, that might come back. You know, and so you feel like, and I, and I was already telling you, I don't. I'm one of those people. I like to get something done and move on. I don't like crap hanging over my head. Well, when somebody's holding a investigation, dude, get the investigation, get it over with. Especially when you know you haven't done anything wrong. Which I've been in that boat, and I've been told, Donna, you are honest to a fault. I will rat myself out every single time. I'll be the first one to call the supervisor and go, Man, I fucked up. Let me tell you what I did, because I can't stand the guilt of holding on to it. I, I, it, it drives me crazy. So I've ratted myself out probably more than anybody else has, but you accuse me of doing something that I have not done or that I did with just cause with good cause, at least allow me the opportunity to explain myself. And if I made a mistake, explain to me why i made a mistake so I can learn from it. But I've had supervisors that just, nope. I'm like, how, how's anybody ever going to grow? How's anybody ever going to learn? If you don't let them learn from their mistakes, writing up a counseling form and having me sign it, it's a piece of paper. All it is is ammunition for you to fuck me over some more later. If you're going to give me counseling form, fine. That's policy, fine. I don't have a problem with that. But can we sit down and talk about, you know, maybe how I could have handled it better or, but they'll put it in a couple little notes. I advise so-and-so that, you know, da-da-da-da. But in your mind, you know that that's not realistic. That's just a piece of paper. That's CYA on their part. They can say they did their job. Did I really learn from it? No, because you never gave me an opportunity to. Yeah. Now, I did have one supervisor, veteran. I never had a problem with him. But it heads with him a few times. But he was the type that he would give you an opportunity to win your... He, I think he just liked a good debate, honestly. And some people took that the wrong way. Some people took him as a, oh, he just likes to argue. He just likes to nitpick things and blah, blah, blah. He likes to show how much he knows. I think he liked... Some people just like a good debate. And so one time he and I got... He was lecturing me on... My daughter had just started kindergarten and I was taking her to work every day in my patrol car. And I had put her in the front seat of the patrol car in a booster seat. You know, so she was high enough so the seatbelt would fit properly. She's my only child. She was born extremely premature. I wouldn't let anything happen to her for anything. You don't think I haven't done my homework before I put her in the front seat of a car to make sure it's safe. Really? So I literally broke out the owner's manual, figured out how the airbag deployed was it horizontal or vertical. How I took the tape measure measured how far it would come out. I put her in the car seat, put the car, car all the way back. She had a foot between where the airbag would stop and where her, you know, face would be. If we were in a collision, and the reason I didn't want to put her in the back seat was number one, it was one of those hard plastic back seats. Try putting a booster seat in the back seat of a pla- it doesn't work. It slides, slip. It, you couldn't secure it. Plus, there's an iron cage back there, and I put nasty people back there. I don't want to put my five-year-old back there. He's lecturing me that it's against the law, and I can't put her in the front seat. And I said, "No, it's not." And he goes, "Yes, it is." And I said, "No, it's not." And he goes, "Yes, it is." Don't argue with me. And I said, "I'm telling you, Sarge, it's not against the law." He goes show me in the statute book i said i can't he goes why not i said because if it's not against the law it's not in the statute book i can't find something that's not there i already tried and he just looked at me like i said sorry i i'm not kidding i researched all this already and then i told him all the steps i've been through i measured it i did this i did that he said well then why do they say the little one's got to go in the back seat i said it's what the national highway safety motor department vehicle whatever that long acronym is <laughs> I said, I said it's recommended that you put them in the back seat, but the law doesn't say you have to. I said, because there's a lot of cars that only have a front seat. So he's like, I'll get back to you on it. He gets back to me the next day and he goes, I don't get proven wrong very often, good job. <laughs> I don't know if it's because I'm a female, but sometimes I feel as flat just because I'm a female. And I hate being one of those women because I'm really not, I'm, I'm not one of those women, but there are chauvinists out there. There just are. And you know them when you find them.
1: Uh, I'm sure you probably talk about it in, in the book I, I haven't got there yet so maybe spoiler alert how did you end you want up
2: want me to answer it if it's a spoiler alert or no
1: well I, I'll i get to it eventually and it's it's
2: yeah but I'm talking about everybody else
1: yeah well no I, I think it's applicable well what led you into law enforcement
2: ah that's a good no that's really a really good question last job I ever thought I would do didn't like cops I hated them actually I can't lie. My uncle was a homicide detective, my father's brother. It was all about the, the power and the badge for him. And he was his own biggest fan, just a, kind of a jerk. He, now he wasn't crazy like my dad, but he was a jerk. So I never really you know, was a big fan of his. And then being in the military, I was uh, more times than not the getaway driver from a bar fight. <laughs> The guys would get in a bar fight and I would be the one to run, go get the car and then get him in the car and then, and run from the police. And then when I did get out of the Navy and I first moved to Orlando, because I didn't become a cop until I'd been here seven years, I got pulled over and got five tickets the year I turned 25 years old. So when my insurance would have, I know this because it was the year my insurance would have finally dropped, right? Five tickets that year in one year. Speed demon. I can tell you that of the five tickets, only one of the officers was nice. And he was a state trooper in South Carolina. I was on my way back from Virginia. He pulled me over. He was truly the nicest cop that has ever pulled me over. And he gave me a ticket, but he was so polite and nice that I didn't mind having getting the ticket. I got pulled over on I-4 by a Florida highway patrol trooper and the first thing out of his mouth was, You must be the dumbest bitch on the road. Give me your license. And then I got pulled over by another trooper on the 417 who made me afraid to reach in my purse because he had his he the the way he was posturing himself and the way he was screaming at me. And I always carried a gun. I've been carrying a gun since I got out of the Navy, even before I became a cop. I was afraid to reach for my wallet because I honestly thought he was going to shoot me. And he was just a complete whole. So I had some very, I would never been to jail, never been arrested, never, you know, never did anything to go to jail, but I just ran into some real jerks. And I had convinced myself that cops are cops because they're just, I had this philosophy. They're they're the kids got picked on when they were little. And now this is time for payback. That was my perception. I was working a part-time job at the mall. Guy came in shopping, started talking to me. Turned out he was sergeant with the local law enforcement agency and he um this small talk started asking me you know what I what I was doing and what I was going to do and whatever and I told him you know I'd been in the military and and I think what I missed most about the military and this is when I was just trying to find that camaraderie I missed it so so much I missed that brotherhood I missed I missed that family connection with not just co-worker workers they were my family I missed it tremendously it was like a hole that just couldn't be filled so I was telling him, you know, well, I was in the Navy, and this is what I did. And, you know, I wish I could find something that fulfilled me the way that did. And he said, well, why don't you go into law enforcement? And I started laughing at him, I'm like, there is no way I would. I said, I would make a terrible cop. And he goes, No, I don't think so at all. And he goes that, you know, that's what I love about being a cop. And he started telling me about the brotherhood and, and all that. And, you know, pretty good sales pitch. And I said, Well, now, let me think about it. And he, he would start he would start coming in, I don't know, like, once a week or so. And because he he would work the mall. So he was working there. So he would just pop in and and just bullshit. He he eventually persuaded me to come to a ride along. He said, come to a ride along. He goes and he goes, I'll put you with one of my female officers. He said, so you can get a woman's perspective. Fair enough. That sounds fun. I what are we gonna be like I'll be on the other side or in the car and get into a chase, you know, like every crazy civilian thing. And I I did it. It was the craziest 12 hours. I think there were 10s back then, 10 hours. It was the craziest 10 hours I'd ever experienced. And I went home and I and I, I remember telling my mom, I said, you know, I knew there were stupid people in this world. I just didn't know how many. Mm-hmm. I'm like, holy crap. And I just started telling these stories. Well, then I did another ride along and then another ride along. And next to you know, it was like, it was a hobby. I was, they're like, why don't you just apply already? <laughs> and I'm like okay, because by this point, I got to know all the other, you know, officers and was building friendships. And, and I, as, I was getting that feeling that I was looking for. Next thing I know, I'm going through the academy and the rest is history. I And, and sometimes I regret it. If I had known then I was going to become a single mom, don't think I would have done it. But at the same token, I asked myself, well, what would I have done instead? And I still don't have an answer for that. So I think I did. I think I'd still I still think I made a good decision. It just It makes me sad to see where we are today. It's not what it was 20 years ago, that's for sure.
1: What's been the most rewarding experience you've had as a law enforcement officer? It's
2: been a couple, that's why I'm sitting here like this. Um, And in my mind, they all are are a tie. Because it's any time I get to help someone in a serious situation, you know, giving somebody directions, no big deal, easy. Helping someone with a crisis when they can't see the forest for the trees, but you're on the outside and you can, and you can guide them. And they actually take your advice or they actually listen to you, which is rare. And then it works out and they come back and they go, oh my God, thank you so much. You don't know what that means to me. Those are the moments that keep you going for me. Anyway, early in my career, we had a kidnapping where a lady was this idiot. Crackhead was trying to rob her and she didn't have her. She was just put out for a walk with her baby in the stroller. And because she didn't have any money or anything to take, he grabbed the baby and he took off. Not sure what he was planning on doing with the baby, but that was what he did. So she clearly freaks out. Somebody calls 911 for her. She didn't even have a phone on her. Somebody calls 911 for her. You know, we we set up a perimeter, you know, helicopters up, dogs are out. We found the guy and I got to be the one to give her her baby back. And that was a, uh, that was really cool. I mean, that was just, you can't put, you couldn't put a figure on on that kind of happiness and peace that you give someone, you know, when you hand them back their child that was literally just kidnapped, you know, by some crackhead. I've had uh, found homeless domestic violence victims living in their cars with their children because they've got nowhere to go and they 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 fled their home out of fear but had no family and nowhere to go. So I've found a couple of those sleeping in their cars behind churches in the middle of the night sleeping taking the time to pull the resources and and make the right phone calls and get them a safe place to go and get them on the right path. I helped a woman escape her abusive boyfriend by Baker acting her. She literally jumped out of a car on a major interstate in in front of a semi, which jackknifed. And believe it or not, nobody got hurt. It was a miracle that nobody, I mean, it was a huge crash, but nobody got hurt. She was actually trying to kill herself. She jumped out of the car because, she, and this is what she told me, I would rather be dead than have to spend another minute with him. It was that awful. We found her in the, you know, because he he called, you know, he told us, you know, she, what she did. So we're assuming, you know, it's a suicide attempt. found her and I put her in my car and that's what she told me. And I said, what are you talking about? And she told me everything he had done to her, everything she'd been through. And I said, okay, here's what we're going to do. So I baker acted her, which I could legitimately do based on the circumstances, but when I got to the, uh, the facility, I told them what happened. Instead of holding her there and going through the normal process that they would normally go through, they called a facility in uh, North Florida and immediately had her moved. They managed to get her a ticket to her family, which was out of state and helped her escape. He spent the next six months looking for me. He was writing letters. He was asking every officer he saw how he could find me. We didn't have social media back then, thank God. He was, he I was to blame. I took her away from him. It was all mm-hmm. my fault. Yeah, he was, he was special. That was really rewarding because she, if, if you're at a point where you're, it's so horrible that you'll jump out of a moving car in a major interstate in front of a semi truck, you know, that's a really bad situation she was in. And I was glad that it worked out the way that it did. And I was really glad we could get her the help that we got her. So those, any of those situations I find, you know, super rewarding. Maybe I should have been a social worker. I don't know.
1: You kind of are in law enforcement.
2: (laughs) Yeah, we wear a few hats, don't we?
1: (laughs) What advice would you give a, a younger you about to go into law enforcement?
2: Oh, that's a hard one. Care less. Because it seems like the more I care, the more it hurts. The more I try, the harder it is. I wish when I took on this career, I would have looked at it as a job and not an identity. Because at the end of the day, when you retire or you quit or you resign, nobody cares. And I hate saying that, but it's the truth. And that is where it has extraordinarily fallen short for me because the Navy, damn you. God, it's like I'm on freaking Oprah. Ugh. This has not happened yet. I hate you right now. (laughs) 30 years from the time I joined the Navy in 1989. Um, I got off active duty in 93, and this is, what, 2000? This is 2020. So I've been out of the Navy, what, 27 years, right? Am I doing my math correctly? Yes. 27 years later, my family is still my Navy brothers. They still, we talk. I talked to one for an hour and a half this morning we talk all the time and not just one i'm talking all of us we are still family my old senior chief was here uh over veterans day weekend i haven't seen him in 30 well 27 years he lives in bolivia he called me he was 10 minutes away showed up at my door and was my house guest for the next three days and then we all went down to a reunion and spent we already knew we were going to see each the reunion, but he showed up three days early to spend time just with me and my daughter. Yeah. He was like a father to me down there. He, we can see daddy is what we call him. You know, he was, he was the old senior chief crotchety old guy. He was the one that kept the young bucks out of trouble. That was his job, but it was so cool to see him now as a 50 year old woman. And he was a 70 year old man still in good a shape as ever. Incredible fountain of youth must be in Bolivia. But it was so cool now to see him and introduce him to my daughter and be able to tell my daughter he was like a father to me. That's my family. And for me to be able to for me to sit here and tell you that my Navy family is my, is my true brothers and my true family 27 years, and I've been in law enforcement for 20, and I don't socialize with anybody that I work with. I don't break bread with anybody I work with. I don't socialize with anybody I work with. I have got friends. But they're my work friends. That's it. I like them. We laugh together. We I mean, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I don't I don't hate I mean, I love them. They're I love them as my work family. But that's where it stops. It stops at the doors. I was in the hospital once for a week. Nobody checked on me. Not even my supervisor. I had a premature baby that was born two and a half months early. My lieutenant checked on me and my former corporal checked on me. I was on hospital bed rest for two weeks prior to her birth, when she was born, and I needed the support because I was by myself, my daughter's father wasn't in the picture. Nobody even checked on me, that hurt. And then I found out the reason they didn't put out a birth announcement when she was born was because they didn't think she was going to make it. So they didn't think she, they should put one out. Really? That was actually said to me, my father died. My coworkers thought I was on vacation, they didn't know he, my father died. And I was on uh, what do you call it bereavement leave. It's not the same. And, and the ones that think it is are lying to themselves. And if they, if they're watching this, they're probably going to hate me for it, but I think they need to hear it.
1: Well, I've actually talked to a couple of other veterans that are in the fire service. I think most veterans go into either law enforcement or uh, the fire department thinking that they're going to have that same kind of camaraderie. And it's always a disappointment. Because it, it's never the same, yeah. It, and you
2: know, we're supposed to take care of each other.
1: There have been times when several guys on my crew were veterans, and you know, and you still build that bond, but it's not it's not as strong when well, you do a really good job of uh, telling that story of how that that brotherhood that that camaraderie, that, that type of bond, how that is solidified. So I'll let people buy the book and, and read about it. But those that have lived it know, know what we're talking about.
2: Yeah, yeah, no. And, and you know, that's the thing. I, I've tried to explain to a lot of my, especially girlfriends, who have never served in the military. When I was in my 20s and we still partied and we still went out to new clubs and, you know, back in our young days. And uh, they're like, I would be so bored when we would go out. And they're like, you're no fun. I'm like, cause y'all don't know how to have fun. Like they would drag me to, oh God, I can't believe I'm gonna this. They would drag me, my daughter won't see it, to this particular club that was a male strip club. Cause that was the girls night out. I only went to be the designated driver. That's the only reason I, I hated it. I hated it with a passion. And they're like, I don't understand you, you're no fun. And I'm like, you haven't been where I've been. Where I've been, it's way better than this. This is a joke. This is lame. You know, it, it's in the book when a my guy, my brothers came into town to do some training and they're like, get your girlfriends together. Let's go out. And then they, my girlfriends who were civilians got to see what my idea was partying was. They didn't know what to do. They were like, they're crazy. And I said, I know, ain't it great. <laughs> you know, <laughs> this is fun that nobody was doing anything illegal. There's no, no drugs, no illegal, no raping, pillaging, and burning shit down. I mean, it was just shenanigans, stupid, hilarious shenanigans. And that was our idea, but we could have more fun staying in than any club could ever offer. That's just, that's just how it was, but they don't, civilians don't understand that. And I quit trying to explain it a long time ago because I finally learned unless you've been there. You're never going to understand unless you unless you've walked in the shoes and you've lived it. You, you you cannot describe it. I mean, I tried in my book to describe it my best, but until you've really been there, it, it's really hard to understand.
1: You don't exactly say it the way that I would say it, but it's in there. There is a lot of that bonding that happens in the hurry up and wait phase. When oh
2: you- Oh, yeah, I know what you're talking about
1: where you're killing time and it's all seeing who can get who.
2: Yeah. Now in the fire service, you guys get to do that because you guys are all hanging out in the firehouse. And you get that 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 hurt when you're in that downtime. Yeah. You guys get that. In law enforcement, we don't have that. We're by ourselves in our cars waiting for the next call. So we don't have you know, and when we're when we're not going to a call, what are we doing? We're looking for a traffic stop. We're looking for something suspicious. We're checking on businesses. You know, we're, we're patrolling. Now, the specialty units, I would imagine they get some of what we're, you and I are talking about right now. But for the average everyday cop that's just in a, that's been in patrol or never, you know, hasn't worked in a tight-knit group, like maybe like, you know, um, a vice or narcotics unit or SWAT or those units that work together as teams, I'm sure they have plenty of shenanigan time. But as the average everyday cop, you you don't, there's no opportunity for it. Now I will admit early on in my career, I did have a supervisor um, who I loved. He was hilarious and he loved playing pranks and we used to prank each other all the time. And that was so much fun. But somewhere along the line, somebody said, you're not allowed to do that anymore because somebody somewhere got offended. God forbid.
1: For young women going into law enforcement or the fire service, a, a male dominated field like that, you've been there and you've done that. You've been, I mean, you were attached to a SEAL unit that that's the most macho of machismo <laughs> yeah. right there. Right, yeah,
2: for sure. Experience what that. advice would I give?
1: Yeah. What advice would you give?
2: How, how? Don't try to be something you're not. Don't go in with a chip on your shoulder, pretending that you can do anything they can do don't go in there trying to be pro- to try to prove something that you're not. Be humble and be quiet. Watch and observe and learn. The ones that go in with the I am woman hear me roar, you know, I can do anything you can do. First of all, don't they don't do Us any favors. They it, it leaves a bad impression. It often causes a lot of tension, and it that will always hurt morale. And I am a big believer of of morale is everything. You gotta you gotta you take care of your people. Your people take care of you. It's just the way it is. In my experience, when we get when when I see women who go in with the you know I'm I'm I am woman hear me war they often make asses of themselves and give other women a bad name. And then if they do fail, instead of owning their own, instead of owning it and saying, okay, I failed because I wasn't properly prepared or I didn't do this or whatever, whatever, for whatever reason, instead of learning from their failure, right? Because we all fail. And the idea is, is, you know, okay, it's okay to fail, learn from it and try again. Well, they won't do that they'll fail and then they'll blame it on other people. That's my advice. With that said, the men who are the leaders and, and the peers for that matter, I think in general, if you go in quiet, you go in humble and you go in with a wanting to learn, but not wanting to prove they are the ones that will help you the most because they will now want to see you succeed. They will lift you up. You will become an equal. You know how it is in the fire service. You get the probie, the probie gets the grunt work. They get all the crappy, all the crappy duty, right? the same way in the military. When you're the new guy coming in, you need all the crappy work and you got to work your way up. And this isn't just go for females. This is our younger generation in general. They all come out of college and they think they need to be the CEO. And that's a big problem. Well, they go in the military and if they go in as a female in a male dominated world, whether it's the military, fire service or law enforcement, whatever, and they come in and they expect special treatment just because they're a female, that's a problem. They need to be treated like a rookie Probie, whatever, just like everybody else and not whine about it. Just do it because that's how you're going to earn the respect. And I see a lot of, I mean, I've had women approach me in grocery stores when I've been in my uniform and tell me, you know, good for you showing those guys that you can do anything they can do. And it pisses me off. <laughs> it does. I hate it because it's like one lady, for example, and I go, and she caught me on the wrong day too. This was a long time ago. I said, really? I said, well, that's funny because I still can't pee standing up. And she's like, what? And I'm like, look, ma'am. I said, did you ever serve in the military? No, ever serve in uniform. No. I said, then do me a favor. I said, don't be so confident about that. I said, everybody has strengths and weaknesses. Men and women are equal, but we are different. They are biologically built to designed to do certain things. They are naturally stronger than us. They have better upper body strength than we do. We are stronger in other ways. I can say communication is definitely one of them because y'all suck at that, okay? Yeah, I would agree. I I don't I don't buy into this a lot of this this movement stuff and and what bothers me is a lot of these women who have never walked in art have never walked in the shoes, they've never served in the military, they've never been in in a law enforcement, they've never been in the fire service, and they're out there with their law degrees saying, younger women, you can do it. You know, show those men. And it makes because now I feel like they're not they're doing them a disservice. They're building them up to believe that they can do something that Maybe on a good day they could do, but the question is, should they? Should they? Because they got to pass the physical. They got to be able to run a certain speed. They got to be able to do so many push-ups, sit-ups, pull-ups, whatever. Maybe they're a badass and they're a stud and they're extremely physically fit and good on them. God bless them. Those women have my utmost respect. But in the military, and I would bet fire service, and I bet this might even go for law enforcement. If, it, if this shit is really hitting the fan and you've got a man down... Who weighs 200 pounds with all of his gear and you've got a five foot four 110 pound woman who might be a badass on her own. Do you really think she's gonna throw that guy over her shoulder and get him out of a firefight or out of a burning building? Alive? I don't.
1: It's gonna be tough.
2: I, I'll, I'll, I know you I know you are not in a position. I'll say it. I don't think so. And I don't want to see the day come where the military, the fire service, and the law enforcement have to lower their standards to let weak ones in.
1: Yeah, no, I agree.
2: Because then lives, and then you know, they might pass the physical, but the question is, is in the heat of the battle, can they really do it? I'm not willing to risk lives on that. That's that's me. Oh, and I know I'm going to piss off a lot of feminists and I don't care.
1: No, I, I don't think it's a matter of, I, I mean, it's just practical. There, there are women that are more fit than a lot of the men. Oh, sure. But a lot of them choose other career paths.
2: Okay. Like Iron Man? I don't know.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, like the, the, so (laughs) the fire service doesn't do a real good job of recruiting women and keeping them. You know, a lot of the women that are just badasses, like you described, that that could pull me out of a fire. Uh, Initially, I would say it's and I'm sure you've experienced it too. It's not easy being a woman in a male-dominated field. It's just not easy. You get treated differently than you do a guy. At
2: times you do. At times you do. That is correct.
1: If you're better than you know a good portion of the men, but you get treated shittier, chances are you'll find somewhere where you're more welcoming or- Oh, yeah. and make better
2: money. Because mm-hmm. yeah, I think it comes down to money. I think you hit the nail on the head because when I start thinking about women who are like what you're describing, you know, like the real badasses, they're out there making money, getting paid making bank for being a badass. Yeah. You know, I'm sitting here thinking of uh I can't think of her name, but she's that MMA fighter, um Rhonda
1: Yeah, Rhonda Rousey.
2: That's her. Now she's a badass. This. all day long. She could probably do it, but why would she when she can go make money, you know, doing what she does? So I think, I think you're right. I've asked young cops. I ask everybody this when they've got less than five years on five or less. Why'd you become a cop? Cause I, I'm genuinely curious. And I, and I used to be an FTO many years ago. And I asked all of my trainees that why'd you become a cop? There's no right or wrong answer to it. Everybody has their reason, but it kind of gave me an idea like, you know, where their head was. The two worst answers I've ever gotten were some of the, most of the answers were good. Most of the answers were your standard. I want to make the world a better place. I want to give back. I want to, but I've had two that have stuck out in my head that were, were bad. And they make me wonder how many more there are. But one of them was, well, I'm just using this as a stepping stone. I really want to go work for the fed. Okay. That's an answer. Well, that's still a cop. So why do you want to go be a cop on a federal level? Well, I just don't like to do paperwork dude, what do you think they do? <laughs> we are the one kicking indoors, doing the reports that we just ta- we just passed the file to them and then they put the federal charges on it. Like, I don't know. He, he was right out of college still living with mom and dad and, and had never had a real job ever. And we gave him a gun and a badge. That one bothered me. I actually would have probably settled for, I just want to drive fast and shoot people. Now mind you, this was, this was a long time ago, long, long time ago. And then he told me that he, uh, mind you, he knew I was a veteran. He just seemed so lost and and he had really had a cocky attitude. It really needed to be knocked down a couple notches. He was, you know, he was talking to me, like I was an idiot and I was his FTO. And the supervisor was a female. And he was talking to her, like she was an idiot. And she was, she was, both of us were veterans. So we were on the way back to the office one night and I was, I had enough of them. He said, uh, I finally said, you know, you ever thought about going in the military, maybe figure out what you want to do. You know, in my mind, I'm thinking, grow up, learn some discipline. You know, that's in my mind. This is what I'm really thinking, but I'm trying to be diplomatic about it. He goes, oh my God, I would never join the military. Oh, really? Why is that? He goes. Only people that go in the military are the ones too stupid to go to college. Holy cow. Okay, well, that's a special kind of stupid to tell your FTO that, who is a veteran. And he knows this. I pulled the car over and I kicked him out. (laughs) I told him he could walk back to the office, which was about a mile. I said, and he could explain to me there what he had done wrong. I said, I want you to think about what you just said, and you can explain it to me when you get there. You can't do that. I said, it's either that, I said, or I'm going to punch you, and I'd rather not do that, so get... I can't get out! Uh, I, I I got back to the office. They're like, "Where's your de- Where's your, where's your trainee?" I said, "He's walking." They're like, "What?" I told him what I did. I said, "Give me a counseling form. I don't care. Give him to somebody else. I'm done with him. I'm not training him anymore. I never trained again."
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> this was a long. This was in the 2004 uh, ish, somewhere around there, three or four. And we were all we were hiring at the time was college, right out of college, right out of college right out of college, and they all send a 22-year-old who's ne- who still lives at home with mom and dad, and who's just graduated from college, and have him go handle a domestic violence dispute, no life experience, and then the other one that bothered me was, because um, I could tell that the drive wasn't there, I said, why'd you become a cop? Well, my whole family's cop, so I figured I'd be one too. And you could tell her heart wasn't in it. And I just, just like, you might want to, I want to rethink that one because you could tell she just, it, she didn't, you could tell she was unhappy. How but long she did was,
1: she last?
2: Uh, I don't know. Yeah, no, I, I, the answer is I don't know. I'm a very passionate person and people don't understand when I cry, it's usually, typically it's anger because if I'm really mad and I, and I'm, and I'm holding back because I know what I'm about to say is going to get me in trouble. Then I, then I end up crying and which a lot of women do men. You need to learn that about us. If you see us cry, just say, you're sorry. Just, just, just say, you're even if you didn't do anything wrong, just say, you're sorry. That's all we need. Help us calm down. Um, but you know, you typically for me, when I cry, it's, I'm a very passionate person. And so either when I'm arguing or I'm fighting or I'm crying, which is very rare, I, when I'm into something, I'm whole, I'm all in, I'm all, I'm, I'm, and that's what's probably gotten me in trouble at work most of the time, because I'll get really dedicated to something, throw my heart and my soul into it, know I'm on to something only to be shut down without a good reason. Now, if somebody gives me a good reason, or if I'm wrong, I have no problem admitting I'm wrong. I'm, I'm, I'm not like that. But I've been shut down on a few, a few times, and then only to find out that someone else in the agency started exactly what I was trying to start. And I did all the legwork. That sucks. Yeah. That sucks.
1: I know we talked a little bit about this yesterday. We don't have to go through it again if you don't want to, but I think it would be- Helpful. Uh, yeah. For me, there was, there was a, a moment when I realized that I needed to get some help. I, I was diagnosed with PTSD a few years back and it's amazing the amount of baggage i was carrying and
2: you didn't know it
1: just pushing through mm-hmm. burying yeah. it and and i was just you know reading your book and and and,
2: and you haven't even got to that part yet yeah i no. <laughs>
1: What what was that moment for you when you, you were like, shit, I, I need some help?
2: I didn't say I needed help. That's the thing. Um. Yeah, you're right. We talked about this yesterday. So for me, and, and this is why I, I came out with my story, because I don't want, okay, 22 veterans a day kill themselves, right? Because of PTSD, I just saw a statistic on first responders recently, and it's uh, fifteen, I think. I think, I think. Don't quote me on that, but I think the number was fifteen. I remember seeing the number five, and it wasn't five. It and it wasn't higher than twenty-two. So I want to say it was like fifteen. And my, in my, and I genuinely believe that the reason these suicides happen is because they just can't take the pain anymore. The, the the I call it the Grim Reaper. The PTSD catches up to you, all the traumas or the trauma, whichever it may be. We compartmentalize them. We stuff them down for years. As first responders, we tell ourselves, well, this is what I signed up for. This is part of the job, right? I knew when I signed up, this was going to happen. We normalize it. That way for ourselves, but what we're really doing is we're putting it in the box and we're putting it on the shelf in our brain and we're forgetting about it or trying to. And then one day, something in our life will happen. It could be professional, it could be personal, it could be a combination of things. For me, it was a combination of things. It was like the, the chapter in my book, The Perfect Storm. For me, it was just a perfect storm. A bunch of crap happened within a short window, and all of a sudden, when that happened it was like the grim reaper literally was reaching from a grave, had me by the back of the collar and was pulling me down. And I, it was like, I was falling into a dark hole and trying to claw to keep from going down it. But I was just too tired and it, and it hurt. And I couldn't, I just wanted to give up. I couldn't do it anymore. Now, as a first responder, as a CIT officer, which is a critical, I don't know, you guys know what CIT is. It's the crisis intervention. Um, as a trained CIT officer, as a uh, first responder, how many Baker acts have I done in my career? I can't even count. I'm recognizing the signs of myself. So in my mind, I can't tell anybody what's going on. They're going to freaking take me away to the, to the hospital with all the people I take. And I know that's not a nice place. I've been there. How humiliating, degrading, and horrific would that be i'm not going there no way in hell am i going there and i know i am not alone in that thought process yeah what happens is for veterans first responders and those of us who have been through this shit, they get to a point where they would rather die than admit they have a problem to someone they know they have a problem but they're not about to tell anybody about it because they're afraid of the consequences they're going to take my gun. They're going to take my badge. They're going to kick me out of the military. They're going to, you know, they're going to all call me crazy. Oh my God. We worry so much about what people think of us and what, the, you know, and, and we, we worked so hard for me. I'd, I'd been a cop 17 years, you know, I'm like 17 years of, of hard work and I'm going to lose it. I was convinced I was going to lose it. I didn't trust anybody. And I have very, I have one very close friend in the agency. I wouldn't even talk to her. She knows plenty of dirt on me. Plenty. And I trust her with my dirt. I could not trust her with that because she would have she would have made the call. I know she would have done it. And I didn't, I didn't want the call made. So for me, it was a matter of I was sliding down this horrible dark hole and I had decided I was gonna I was gonna punch out. I I I, I just didn't know how, but I had I had I had put parameters in my head. Of how I did not want it to go down because I've been on enough of those calls. I see the pain that it causes the family. I see what it does to the loved ones. And I wanted to protect my daughter the best I could. You would think, or at least even I thought, oh, well, I had my daughter to live for. That should have been enough. But I was so bad that I felt like I was failing as a mother. I felt like she deserved better and I was failing her because I couldn't get my shit together. All I did was cry. I couldn't get off the couch. I would go to work, but I would I would hide. I wouldn't interact with anyone. I would go to calls. I would do the bare minimum and I would leave because I was afraid of losing my shit. It was taking every ounce of strength I had while I was at work to just keep it together. And then when I would go home, I would fall apart. And this went on for a few months. I knew that I wasn't gonna be able to keep up the facade forever. I knew that and I didn't want to. I was exhausted. I was in pain and I just was done. So I put her on a plane, my daughter, and I sent her to a dear friend of mine who lives out of state um, and my daughter loves going up there. It's a farm and she loves visiting and so she, we treated it like it was. it was summertime, school was out. So we treated it like it was a vacation. I guess it wasn't a couple months. It felt like forever, but it really wasn't. The The thing that broke me happened on June 1st and it was mid July when I was planning this. So it was about six weeks. It just seemed like forever though. Put her on a plane, sent her out of state and started planning how I was gonna do it. And then once I figured it out, I was on my floor and I didn't want to. I wanted to, but I didn't want to. I was afraid because I'm Catholic. And I was raised at commit, you know, you commit suicide, you go to hell. That's, 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 you know, that's what I was raised, you know, but then I would say to myself, but God's got to understand how much pain I'm in. God, God will understand. God will forgive me because I can't take this anymore. And it was a real struggle. And I called my best friend, the guy that I had fallen in love with in the book. Um, We had remained friends through the years. And I called him because he was the one person who truly, and we just had this conversation like literally two hours ago because I was upset about that little thing we were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. He called me and, and he said, uh, what's going on? Cause I had texted him and I knew we were doing this podcast and I didn't want to get on here like a raving bitch. So I was trying to get myself, you know, <laughs> calm down, get my head clear. So <laughs> I, I, call, I texted him and and I was upset. And I said to him, I said, you're the only one that truly understands that when I get really, you know, when I'm in, I'm all in and I get really, really passionate. I said, people don't understand when I'm angry. It's because I'm passionate about something. When I, when I raise my voice and get excited, it's because I'm, I'm passionate about it. We, we discussed the issue and, and he told me to go do my podcast and call him when I'm done and we'll, we'll finish our conversation. But anyway, getting back to that. So that day I, I called him. He's just my person. And I called him and I said, uh, I wasn't expecting him to answer the phone. He never answered on weekends, but he did for some reason that day. And I was actually planning on leaving a voicemail. uh, So I was surprised when he answered and I just broke out in tears. I was hysterical. And uh, the only words that he's like, oh, my God, what's wrong? Calm down. Tell me what's wrong. You know, I finally just I just said it. I said, I can't do it anymore. I just want to die. He's like, whoa, 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 what are we talking about? And he knew I was going through a rough time. And I told him, I just can't take the pain anymore. I can't do it. I can't, I can't do it anymore. I'm done. He's like, no, no, you don't. No, you don't. Whatever he was doing that day, he stopped it. And he spent eight hours sitting on the phone with me, reminding me that I'm the strongest woman that he know he's ever known, that he was always going to be there for me. and that we all go through these times and that uh, he promised me it would get better. So I asked him if he would, uh, I made him promise me that he wouldn't call the cops on me. I made him promise me that he wouldn't call anybody and report me because I was terrified of, of them taking me away and he promised me that he wouldn't as long as i promised him i would go talk to somebody this was a sunday i had some xanax that a doctor had given me and i uh i took one and i'm not a big pill taker i'm not a fan at all but sometimes you need them and he said take one get some sleep and call in tomorrow and go talk to a doctor i'm going to call you in the morning and i'm going to make sure that you do this and i promised him i would and i did and that lasted that lasted um for a couple they put me on they put me on antidepressants and that i i remember it was like day 10 and It was the first day that I started to feel human again, where I didn't feel like I, when I opened my mouth, I was going to start crying. So that was a good thing. And, uh, it was October when I met, uh, and I can say his name on here because anybody who, who needs help needs to, needs to look this guy up. But it was in October that I met, uh, An officer by the name of Jesse Holton. And uh, he is an incredible human being. He is a combat veteran with PTSD. He served as a cop. I forgot how long he was here in Florida, but it was a while. I know he'd been a sex crimes detective for like a decade, for 10 years. And then he found some land in Montana and he bought a bunch of land and he now runs a retreat for first responders and veterans with PTSD he went back to school and got his PhD. So he is Dr. Jesse Holden. Now he's a police officer in Montana. That's just because he loves cop work, but his passion is, is helping those of us that struggle by dumb luck. I met Jesse in a class that I was in and he read me freakishly like a book. He knew me an hour or two And he automatically knew something wasn't right. He pulled me to the side at lunch and he asked me a question and he said, "Uh, didn't you say you served in the military? And I said, yeah. He said, uh, did something happen to you? And the way he said it, I knew he knew. And I just lost it. Like in all those years, no one ever asked me i was having i went to see a doctor before i got out of the navy about recurring nightmares i was having recurring nightmares right before i left the navy in panama it was the same it was the same nightmare every single night i describe it in the book and i went to see a doctor and even they did not ask me did something happen to you Hmm. and uh jesse did and i lost it and i Sobbed and sobbed. It was like all those years of just trying to pretend something didn't happen. And he punched a hole in the dam and the whole damn thing came down. And he asked me, have you talked to anybody about this? And I said, you're the first person I've told in 20 something years, because Zach was the, the only other person. And um, he's like, you need to go to the VA. And I laughed at him. I said, I'm, I, they're not going to do anything for me. I, I, I never told anybody. I never reported it. There's no documentation of it. They're not going to help me. He goes, trust me, just go to the VA. He gave me the rest of the day off. He says, I don't, you don't need to be in this class. You've been a cop 17 years. He goes, I can't teach you anything in here. You haven't already experienced or learned. He goes, go to the VA, just trust me on this one. So I did, I walked in I walk up to the desk. I tell the lady, um, I need help. I need some help. And she's like. Okay, well, what kind of help do you need? Can I see your ID? And I'm like, I don't have an ID. I said, but I guess I need to get one or get processed. I mean, I really didn't. I was trying to speak a language. I didn't know how to learn. I, did, I hadn't learned yet. Because the VA, trust me, has its own language. She's just sitting there looking at me like, I don't get it. And I couldn't say the words. I couldn't get the words out of my mouth. I looked up and there happened to be a poster above her head. And it was, ex- it was a hotline for women like me. And I just looked up at it and I just pointed at the poster above her head. She turned around, she looked at it, she looked back at me and she saw the tears in my eyes and she said, have a seat, I'll be right back. Okay. Within 20 minutes, I was sitting in a um, psychologist's office and they were documenting everything. And that was the beginning. And while I'll sit here and tell you, you know, a lot of people bitch and they complain about the VA, don't be wrong, they're not perfect, but they have come a long way. And I think it, and I truly think it depends on what clinic you go to. Some are better than others, just like any medical facility. For me, it was an extremely positive experience. Going through the cognitive uh, processing therapy sucked. I did not like it. Um, At the end of it, I told the doctor, I think it was a waste of my time. And he said, I'm sorry you feel that way. But it was about six months later that I realized. I got more out of it than i knew it just took some time to kind of sink in the good things that came out of it was i learned my triggers uh one of which is cigarette smoke my mom is a chain smoker we had fought for years gotten some horrible fights um and i had no idea that the scent of cigarette smoke was a trigger for me and it is i smell it and i instantly feel anger i mean just horrible anger so that's a cigarette smoke is, is a so then I felt guilty because of how hard I'd been on my mom all those years and bitching at her and, and you know yelling at her and just being, I was ugly. And so then I felt guilty because I had, I didn't realize I was taking that anger out on my mom. So I sat her down and I told her what I had learned and, you know, we, we cried together and she was much more understanding. And she said, she was glad I told her because she, um, could at least understand that it wasn't her. It was a situation that was just coming out. It helped me because now I can check myself and instead of getting angry at her, I can go, mom, can you put that out? Or can you, you know, cause she knows what it does to me. It, it really, really sets me off. If I get cornered by a, a male in, a, in an authority position and I get belittled by them, Oof, yeah, that'll uh, that'll send me zero to sixty pretty quick. That'll that'll put me right into a fight or flight uh, scenario. Um, I try to flee because I know when I lose my temper, I am pretty nasty. So I usually will tell someone, this conversation needs to stop, I need to go cool off. you know, I need a break. You know I've learned how to do that. and And most of the time it works but some people don't listen. And when that happens and I can't, and I physically can't walk away from the situation for whatever reason, then the, then the fight comes out and then it's uh pretty volatile. Cause I, like I said, when, when, when I get to that point, I'm, I can be pretty nasty. I can be pretty, pretty, uh, you know, aw- awful. I've never hit anybody. I've never been, I've never been violent, but Ooh, can I, uh, and I cut somebody in half with uh, with my tongue, as they say? I got that from my grandma. <laughs> you read about my grandma, didn't you? The one that took me fishing. Did I
1: don't you read know. the
2: fishing? You, come on, man. That's like the first chapter, and that's some good stuff right there. My father's mother that took me fishing late at night.
1: Oh, okay. Yes. No, I yeah, I remember it now.
2: She's uh, she's uh, she was a piece of work, I tell you. And I got and I got that from her. I'm pretty sure. So. Um,
1: with all the, uh, with all the teens parking in the fishing spot.
2: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I remember I was so little. I, I, and I, and I didn't even understand what was going on, but I remembered still being embarrassed, you know, (laughs) the windows were all steamed up and, you know, it was, it was the local parking spot. My grandma's, I'm trying to take my granddaughter fishing. You get your asses out of here. And I was just like, oh my (laughs) God, oh my God, oh my God. That was my grandma. She was, she was a trip. God love her. She was, she was hell on my, she was hell on wheels. That's what she was. She would follow somebody home. She invented road rage. Okay. She invented it. She would follow somebody home if she didn't like their driving and curse them out and drive away. And then she'd drive to our house and say, well, I read their pedigree. (laughs) She was a trip. But I loved her she spoiled me rotten she was good to me my grandparents were very good to me I think that's I think the grandparents are, are why I managed to um survive my childhood because I had really good grandparents my mom would my, my mom wouldn't say that but I would
1: and, th- and those are your maternal grandparents
2: well the 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 crazy grandma that I talked about that was my father's mother okay um then when we got to North Carolina, it was my maternal grandparents that lived, uh, down the, down the mountain from us and, uh, was within like walking distance. So when things got bad at home, I would just go to grandma and grandpa's house and, and I adored both of them. I, I did. They were my, my grandpa was a hell of a man, you know, and, uh, loved him very, very much. And, um, and my grandma was just a really good ear to listen to, you know, so my, I, I, you know, they, I just, they were good to me. I have no complaints there. And I'm glad, I think it might've been my grandpa that probably inspired me to join the military more than anybody, even though everybody had been in the military, it was my grandpa that, cause I just, uh, I just looked up to him so much and, um, and he, you know, World War II veteran and, um, I'm just a man's man, you know? And my grandparents, it was funny, you know, you look at the wedding picture, they literally looked like a Hollywood couple. They were such a beautiful couple. You know, dark hair. He was, he was the tall, dark, and handsome, and she was a, a nightclub singer. They were he fascinating. Was, uh,
1: he was the CB, right?
2: Correct. He was the CB on the on Guam. And they built the uh, what would now be the naval base on Guam. My grandpa was part of the, the CBs that that developed it and then it became a u.s territory after the war yeah matter of fact hold on a second this will be the first time i get to show this i just found this the other day in a box if you can see it it's my grandfather in guam
1: wow
2: i'm going to try and restore it but he's sitting on a fallen tree in, in guam that's him
1: yeah, he does kind of look like a movie star.
2: Doesn't he, though?
1: Yeah. That's
2: so, awesome. I'm gonna, I love that picture. I'm, I'm going to try and restore it and see if I can bring it back to life. It's starting to fade. But, yeah, he was He was. He was awesome. He caught me doing so much shit that I should have gotten in so much trouble for. He never ratted me out once. He, he bailed <laughs> me out. Like, I would do something stupid. I would like, I was a daredevil. I had an ATV uh, motorcycle. And i would literally drive it off the side of a mountain and uh and i would always ditch off of it before it would go over the edge but then it would go over the edge and i'd have to go get grandpa and he'd get his jeep and he'd tow it back up over the edge of the mountain for me could you couldn't destroy that thing it was indestructible and i was young i was you know 15 years old i could jump off of it I saw I I, once I realized I was losing control and like it was about to get ugly I would literally just jump off and just let it go (laughs) and when it would go (laughs) over the edge I go grandpa come get my he never told on me not once (laughs) never told on me
1: now I'm wondering if if you can recall a um a defining moment in your life maybe maybe it's a point where Maybe it was something that you considered a, a a failure or you just kind of fell on your face kind of deal and you were able to pick yourself up, learn from that experience and move forward. But it maybe something that really stays with you today, a, a lesson that.
2: Yeah, you and I talked about it yesterday. Um, so I'm 50 and I've never been married, right? When I had my okay, let me build let me give you the, the the backstory so it'll make sense. I've struggled with weight my whole life. It's just it's always been a struggle. When I had my daughter though, I really I couldn't lose the pregnancy weight. And then the doctor ran some labs, found out I had hyperthyroid disease. So it didn't matter what I did, that weight wasn't coming off. And it just, you know, I kept piling it on. So over the next 10 years, um, you name it, I tried it, you know, I tried the, the hormone shots. I tried Jenny Craig. I tried every freaking fad diet out there, you know, and I would lose, then I'd plateau, then I'd gain it right back. I just couldn't get ahead. So I had weight loss surgery in 2015, December, 2015. And I lost over hundred pounds. I was 45, 45 years old. And I suddenly felt 20 years younger. My joints didn't hurt. My feet didn't hurt. My back didn't hurt. I was running five K's. I was, you know, I was feeling great. Men were starting to pay attention to me. And I look back now and I say, okay, yeah, I got thyroid disease. And that explains the weight gain. But I also think that part of me let myself go because it was a way to push men away. I didn't want to feel like a piece of meat anymore. So I felt like if I let myself go and get fat, I wouldn't have to worry about feeling uncomfortable if a man were to flirt or hit on me, right? Because I never liked the way that felt, which I know doesn't make sense because it's supposed to be flattering. But for me, it was an uncomfortable situation. But at the same token, I knew that it wasn't healthy and I wanted to be around for my daughter. And I was starting to be feel really embarrassed about how I looked. I found out that kids were picking on my daughter because her mom was a fat cop and that hurt more than anything. So I went, I I found out through a friend of mine, you know, at my agency who had gotten the weight, who had also struggled for many years with his weight. And I saw him one day after not seeing for a while and he was, he was retiring and he was thin. And I was like, holy crap, where did you go? And he said, I went to Mexico. I said, got Montezuma's revenge. I'm like, you know, what? what, what, what happened?" <laughs> he told me he, he had weight loss surgery. I was like, are you crazy? You're lucky they didn't take your organs and put them on the black market. I'm like, you're nuts. And he laughed. He said, no, I know that's what everybody says. And he educated me on this fantastic facility that, you know, tons of people, Americans were using and. He gave me the information. I started doing my research on it and I ended up going. All the nitty gritty details are in the book, but that's the synopsis. So I lost this, so I had the surgery. I lost the weight. I was starting to feel good. And people were starting to tell me, Donna, you need to get out. Donna, you need to find somebody. Sophia is going to uh, grow up one day. Your 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 nest is going to be empty and you're going to be all alone. You need to find somebody. No, 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 I'm fine. I'll be fine. When she's gone, I'm just going to travel. I'm just going to me and my dogs. We're just going to travel. I'll be fine didn't want to do it. (sighs) Sophia, for a number of years, had been asking about her dad. Um, She'd never met him. He disappeared when I told him I was pregnant. I'd known him 17 years, but he disappeared when I told him I was pregnant. Didn't want to be a dad. And that was, that was tough. So she would say things like, you know, why don't you go to Walmart and find a dad? Like I could go buy one on the shelf. And I'd be like, no, it didn't, it didn't work that way. I put her in counseling and she had finally, you know, started coming to terms with, that's just not, that's not going to happen. So one night I was putting her in bed or telling her to go to bed. And I was like, okay, honey, you know, say your prayers, whatever. She said, you know what I pray for? And I thought, and you have a daughter, so you're going to understand this. I thought, oh Lord, what is it this week? A horse, a pony, another dog, a cat. God, what pet do we want now? Right. And she's like, I said, what is it? She says, I pray for you to find someone. So when I'm all grown up, you won't be alone. She's 10 years old. And that was rough. It's one thing for your friends to tell you. It's another thing for your kid to tell you. So I went in my room and I just sat there and I cried because I was too scared to do that. I didn't want to do that. Wasn't too much longer that I got invited to uh, help a friend of mine's husband throw her a surprise birthday party. So of course, I'll, he wanted help decorating and all that crap. He didn't know how to throw a party and I'll help you. So I went over. It was about, it's about a 45 minute drive from where I live. So, you know, figured I'd be drinking. I just planned on spending the night there. I wasn't going to drive home. I get over there and here he, and he walks and he's got a couple of his guy friends with him to help him move some heavy objects. And this guy walks through the door and I'm like, holy crap, I might not be interested, but I ain't blind. And, you know, this guy was good looking and he was well built. And just right away just caught my eye. And we hit it off at this party. He was flirting with me and I had a little bit to drink. So my inhibitions were down. I was flattered, you know. And of course I'm feeling good about myself. I've just lost over a hundred pounds. You know, my ego is it's needing this, right? I didn't realize, however, that he wasn't as old as I thought he was, and I wasn't as young as he thought I was. Uh, He was 13 years my junior. I'm certainly no cougar, nor do I want to be. (laughs) That was not on my agenda. But when a guy, a hot guy who's 13 years younger than you starts hitting on you, And you've had a little bit to drink and you've just lost over a hundred pounds. It feels pretty good. You know, it does a lot for your self-esteem. It was late into the evening when the alcohol suddenly wore off. And I suddenly realized I was in a situation that I didn't want to be in. I had a full-blown panic attack. Now, nothing had happened, but it could have. If the alcohol had been involved, probably could have, but it didn't. Thank God. But I had a full-blown panic attack. Sat up, gotta go, gotta go. I mean, it's like four o'clock in the morning. I gotta go. Where's my purse? I got me. I'm grabbing my stuff. He's like, "What are you doing?" I'm like, "I gotta go. I gotta go home. I gotta go home. I do have home. 45, five, four o'clock in the morning. No, I probably shouldn't have driven, but I just had this overwhelming fear that I gotta get out of here and I gotta get out of here right now. And I did. Got my car and left. Called the next day, told my friend, don't give him my number. Don't give him my name. Don't tell him where I work. Don't tell him anything. Um, I had fun. He did nothing wrong. He's a nice guy. That was weird. I don't, it had been so long that I just freaked out. Two months passed by, Hurricane Matthew came through and kicked my ass. I lost my roof. I lost my fence. I lost a bunch of shit. And I called around looking for handyman, somebody to help me couldn't find anybody because my fence was down and my dog and my screw, my, my, I lost my pool enclosure. So my dogs were getting out. There was no fence to keep them in. And I just needed somebody to come fix it good enough until I could get an insurance claim and get it done properly. Well, that's what this guy does. He, he was in construction. So I called my friend. I said, he's probably going to tell me to go pound sand but I've, I, I just need some help, like quick, like a quick fix until I can get it properly fixed. I said, can I call him? So he gave me the number and I called and to my surprise, he didn't tell me to go pound sand. Um, he actually was really nice. He apologized for whatever he did wrong. It had been bothering him why I freaked out and ran away. And I did the classic, it's not you, it's me, <laughs> you know? <laughs> So to answer your question, I should have trusted my instincts because that panic attack was my inner instincts telling me this was a bad situation. I need to get out of it. I blamed it on me just being afraid of men. Then he came over. He fixed everything. Was really nice. Very charming. Really good at playing the con game. Before I knew it, we were dating and he was giving me the He's a single dad. He had a teenager and he was giving me the, my leases up and I'm over here all the time. Anyway, why don't we move in together? And then we can like save money because we'll divide the bills. My instincts knew to say no. My instincts knew it was too soon, but I didn't trust him. Or I, I don't say I didn't trust him. I didn't listen to him. And in hindsight, every freaking red flag that could have been there was there he told me this bullshit story about how he had PTSD from being in the military and he got shot in Afghanistan. Oh my God, the load of bullshit that he gave me. And I believed it because he had two scars like right here. And they honestly did look like bullet wounds. Why wouldn't I believe him? Oh, he was emotional. When he told the story, it was so convincing. And then when he started having problems he's the drinking. Then I started noticing he was a really mean drunk. So we started drinking and then he would get really, really mean. And he would get really, really like, it started to become an abusive relationship being the helper and the rescuer that I am or tried to be was begging him, you know, Hey, listen, let's, let's, let's get you to the VA. You know, there's I've got friends with PTSD. I've been got friends who've been through combat I, because I do. I mean, a lot of my, all my friends that are in the military, I mean, we've all been through shit, you know, there's this combat mine's not, but it's all still shit. I said, uh, you know, give me your DD-214 and let me, you know, let me, let's get you some help. I don't know where it is. Find a veteran that doesn't know where their DD-214 is. Good luck with that. We all know where our DD-214 is. Matter of fact, we know where all 10 or 20 copies of it we made are because that's what we do, right? That's an incredibly important piece of paper. Right. That just right away. I was like, Mm-mm, something's not right. Why doesn't he want help? Why doesn't he want to get benefits? Why doesn't he know where his DD 214 is? So I started digging. He never served a day in the military, not one. The whole thing was a lie. He had had three restraining orders put on him in from other counties from women. And it seems like once I started digging, I just kept finding more and more and more and more shit. He had an arrest record I didn't know about. And by now he's living with me and he's, um. And I'm scared and I was legitimately scared to death of him. He was extraordinarily volatile. So it felt like I was always walking on eggshells, always, um, worried about setting him off. And then it, then it occurred to me, oh my God, I have got my daughter in the exact same fucked up situation that I grew up in. And that's when I went, no, ain't no, I am not doing that to her. Because I spent my whole life wanting to know why my mom didn't leave my dad. I did it. I told him, you know, listen, you can stay here. This was in uh, March. I told him, you can stay here for the rest of the school year for your daughter to finish school. But from now on, we're just, we're, we're roommates. I said, I'm not going to kick you out with your daughter. You, she could, because I, I didn't want to do that to her. I knew they had nowhere to go. The next day, I took my daughter to an arts festival. And when we came home, he was drunk, had a metal pipe in his hand. I was threatening to kill my German shepherd. I sent my daughter to a friend's house around the corner. I walked in, we got into a huge argument in the house. He said, give me my guns, which I had locked in my safe. And I said, are you fucking crazy? No, I'm not giving you your guns. He said, they're my guns. You got to give them to me. I said, no, you've been drinking. I'm not giving you your guns. He yells for his daughter. She comes out. He said, did you see that? She said, see what? He goes, she just hit me. Call the cops. So he was going to have me arrested for bullshit that didn't happen because I wouldn't give him his guns. I grabbed my purse. I said, I'm done. I ran out the door. He chased after me. I took off in my truck and he was chasing me down the street. And I was bawling my eyes out. Can't even go home to my own home. I called a friend, got my daughter, spent the night at a friend's house, called into work the next day, went and got a restraining order. And by the time I got done with that and I came home, he was gone. He had taken all of his clothing and his immediate personal effects, but he'd left all all of his other crap. You know what I mean? Like furniture, TVs, that kind of stuff. He took his like immediate personal belongings. When it was all said and done, he had—I was in—he I, I, had uh, suckered me out of seventeen thousand dollars in four months. He was driving a truck that was in my name. He had stolen one of my badges that I didn't know of, one of my extra small badges. He was putting in his wallet, and every time he got pulled over by the cops, he was badging them. Found all this out later that I didn't know it at the time. I found it out later. I repoed his truck twice. Told him he needed to get it out of my name, or I was sending it to auction. He got himself a new girlfriend, and her mother. This is how good of a charmer he is. In a matter of a few months, he got a new girlfriend and she got her mother to buy the truck, paid cash for it, got it out of my name and paid me back all the money that he owed me just to get me to go away. The only go away was give me my money that you owe me and get your shit out of my house. Or because literally he wouldn't come get his stuff. He had a whole household full of crap in my house that was sitting in my garage in storage. I couldn't even get in my garage. We I mean, come get your shit out of my house and give me the money that you owe me. He wouldn't get out of my life the whole time he was dating her. He was still, please. I miss you. I love you. And I'm like, no, 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 you're fucking crazy is what you are No." And that is so to answer your question, the mistake is I didn't listen to my instincts. That was a very hard lesson learned. And it's hard because I already have trust issues that just made him worse. I don't know if I'll ever get in another relationship again. I don't know if I want to. I like my life. It's comfortable. And maybe when my daughter's grown and and out of the house and I don't have to worry about so much who I bring into her life, because I think that's probably what it is more than anything. I'm very careful who I bring into her life. She's been hurt too much and I don't want her to get hurt anymore. That's that. And my advice to everyone is always, you know, God gave us a sixth sense for a reason. You need to listen to it. I believe in a sixth sense. I don't believe in that psychic babble bullshit, but I do believe in six senses. Right. And I think that's, I think that's helped me in my career. I can think of calls that I've been on where we're going to get a bad guy. Something just ain't right. I, to this day, I will never not listen to that instinct. I will back out, regroup and figure out what it is. I don't know yet. And, you know, I'm not saying walk away. I'm saying. Let's not just rush into a situation without knowing what we're rushing into. You know, let's, let's get gather as much as we possibly can before we do something that could get somebody hurt. Now, if it's an active shooter situation or lives are, that's, that's a different story. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about somebody has got a warrant, he's a bad guy, time is on our side. We can take our time on that.
1: Is there any experience that you've had that is not in the book, but you wish you would've put it in there?
2: Oh God. Yeah. I thought of a, a few things um, that I forgot to put in the book and I, and I laugh and I go, God, how did I forget to put that in there? You know, the Motley Crue song, skydive naked from an airplane. Yeah, Been there, done that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> awesome. That yeah. was, uh,
2: that was fun. That was, that was in my daughter. I know she's gonna be like, mom, why do you have because it? she does. I'm like, it's a rite of passage in the skydiving community. At your hundredth jump, you have to do a naked skydive. So it wasn't like some harebrained idea I got. It's it's a traditional, a tradition, pa- right of passage. When I did my hundredth jump, there was a girl from Norway that was visiting. By the way, if people don't know this, Florida is one of the top skydiving places in the world because we're at zero sea level and we have great weather and no mountains. You know, we from, from a skydiving perspective, we've got sweet environment for it. There was a girl from Norway because, you know, Norway doesn't have that. She had was doing her hundredth jump. And so we both... You know, we, we made a pack together. We're like, all right, how are we going to do this and, and and keep our dignity? You know, <laughs> so we came up with a plan. We call we got one of our other female skydiver friends. And it's at a, it's an airport. It's a, it's a regional airport, not obviously not a regular airport. It's a regional airport, but it was a fairly decent size one. And on the other side of the drop zone was just a part of the airfield that nobody ever used. We're like, all right, we're going to get on the plane. We're going to let everybody go first because on the plane is there students, there's cameramen, there's tandems, there's people doing their first ones. I'm like, I am not getting naked on an airplane with cameras on there. And that ain't happening. So we told the pilot, we got we get on the plane and all we had on was our, our, our like, you know, soft cotton shorts. And we were wearing bathing suit tops and then our, and then our rig, which is not normal jump wear, right? Normally you're in a jumpsuit and you look a little bit more official, But that's what we get on the plane with and when you see somebody get on a plane wearing as little as possible you know what they're about to do because it's easy to take off so we get on the plane first so we could be last going out and we told the pilot hey we need a second pass because we're going to let everybody else go first and then while after the last cameraman leaves the plane that'll give us a chance while the plane's circling around to take our tops off and take our bottoms off and we tied them onto the top even tied them onto the side of our rig and all we had on was our was our sandals we wore uh tevis back then you know remember the sandals that you can secure around your ankle yes yeah, so it's yeah. like sport sandals that's what we were wearing you know we're we're like i can't believe we're doing this you know you feel absolutely ridiculous but in a way it's kind of giddy and you know it's pretty you know like going skinny dipping for the first time there's just something silly about it right. so the pilot's like all right i got you girls you know no worries so the the, the guys go out the the cameras go out. Her and I, Kristen, they can remember her name. Her and I, we get, we get ready. He gives us the green light. You know, the light comes on and out we go. And I don't care how fit you are. I don't care if you're Stallone Schwarzenegger back in the day. I don't care if you're Lance Armstrong. I don't care how 0% body fat you are. The human body, at 120 mile an hour is not an attractive sight it, it <laughs> there's nothing attractive at all about it it is like turning into a human sharp a the the skin is just rippling it's truly one of the funniest things i've ever seen and her and i are in free fall we're literally just pointing and laughing at each other because we look so ridiculous finally <laughs> we, we open our we open our parachutes We're coming down, doing our thing. And remember, we we decided to land in a remote part of the airport, not at the regular where everybody else is. So we're way, way, way in a remote part. We didn't realize that on the other side of that tree line was a softball field where there was little league games going on. (laughs) And the way the wind direction was going pretty much had us hanging over those softball fields and we and we would come in over the tree line and then have to land into the wind. So we're looking at each other like, God, I hope they don't look up, you know. Cause you know, over there they were so used to seeing skydivers all the time that they, you know, they were just it wasn't a big deal to see a parachute. But we were hoping they wouldn't look real close at what was under the parachute, you know. <laughs> so we got down as quickly as we could put our clothes on. Our girlfriend came out with the truck, picked us up, loaded us up and took it back. And we were like, all right, we can say we did it, but it, it, you know, it's cool. I'm I'm glad I did it. It, It's just one of those things. How many people can say they've, they've done that, you know, and it was, it's for how many 20 something years now, it's always been good for a a good laugh. So Motley Crue um, kickstart. My heart is definitely one of my favorite songs.
1: How many jumps do you have now?
2: I stopped at 300.
1: Wow. How how long ago? did you stop
2: when I became a cop?
1: Uh,
2: Yeah, I went from one adrenaline fix to another. Yeah. That's pretty much what happened. I mean, you know, when, when you become a cop, I mean, the job owns you, I mean, between all the training and then you start working all the off duty. And I mean, I was working all the time. And the thing is I got hired. I didn't get hired right away. I was a reserve for seven months. So I went through my savings account trying to pay bills while I got through the FTO process. I, I, I was w- literally working for free and trying to get hired. And then um, I sold my skydiving gear to make money to pay bills. I sold all my gear. So then I just kind of married the job and, and I let it, I let it own me like everybody else does, I guess. I will not lie. I still miss skydiving. I would, if it, if it, if it my daughter wants to do it really bad. I told her when she's old enough you know i'll go with her because there's still days i go outside and I look at the sky and i go man it's a good day to jump it's truly an addictive hobby but i kind of am glad i gave it up because a lot of my friends are dead now and accidents i mean they happen and that's one of those that's one of those sports where an accident happens and it's 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 either a miracle or you're dead and yeah. eventually the wrong, you know, one, one too many accidents happen. I mean, we've all had accidents. I've had accidents. I, I I screwed my knee up. I broke my nose once, twice. No, broke it once, but got kicked in the face another time. I mean, accidents, people are, would be amazed how many, how dangerous it is just exiting the aircraft. Cause when you do relative work and you're, you're doing the, you see them do the formations where they're doing this. That's what I used to do. And when you go out of a plane, literally as a ball of human beings, you'll get kicked in. That's why they wear the helmets. Be like, why do you wear helmets? You think it's going to protect you when you land? I'm like, it's not for when you land. It's for when you're up there because a kick in the face is pretty common actually. Hmm. So we have devices that if we get knocked unconscious, it'll open our parachute for us automatically. Say little safety things like that. But you know, you have malfunctions with your parachute. You know, you got to know how to cut it away and pull your reserve. Accidents, they, they happen all the time and you prepare for them just like you do in the fire service and law enforcement. You got to You've got to know how not to freeze and panic when an emergency happens and know how to work through it. And I, and I think I use that if I'm not mistaken, when I interviewed for my job, the agency, they asked me, how are you in a stressful situation? And I used a skydiving malfunction as an example of, well, this happened. And I had to keep my cool to work through the problem so that I didn't die. It's one of those things, but then eventually an accident's going to happen that no matter what you do, there's nothing you can do. And it's just your time and that's it. And I, and I think now I'm like, ah, maybe it's a good thing I left when I did, because it might've caught up to me Uh, being the daredevil that I was probably would have caught up to me eventually.
1: As a law enforcement officer, have you had any moments where you, you got off duty and said, you know, I don't know if I want to go back.
2: Oh, I'm sure I have. I think everybody has those. I mean, I had one last week, which I can't talk about, (laughs) but yeah, no, I mean, I think everybody goes through that with any job, really. We all have bad days. Life is full of bad days, you know, but you've got to, you got to sit there and ask yourself, do I really want to leave now before I'm ready? A lot of my friends retired from the military. That will forever be my biggest regret that I, that I didn't stay in the military and retire. I say that because I left a phenomenal family behind who's to say that if i'd stayed in i wouldn't have gone to a horrible place like my first duty station yeah. i don't know that i like to think that everything happens for a reason you know maybe maybe i got maybe getting out was the right thing for me Every, you know writing my book and 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 just the wisdom that i've gained you know in maturity i've come to become a firm believer that everything happens for a reason good and bad you've got to be able to trust and have faith that while you may not understand some of the shitty things that happens that in the, that eventually you're going to go, Oh, you know what? Well, if that hadn't happened, then maybe this opportunity wouldn't come along. You know, there's a saying, you know, for every, for every door that closes, you know, God opens a window. And I think that there's a lot of truth to that. And I think that that is something that I have definitely found peace with since being diagnosed with PTSD and getting treatment. And when I wrote my book, I had quite a few aha moments where I went, oh, God, you know, I never thought about it. But if this hadn't happened, then that opportunity wouldn't have come. And that was a really good thing for me in my life. As far as like, have I had days where, yeah, of course. I mean,
1: the, the context that I was going for, and I, I didn't clarify it well enough, is more like maybe an instance that that scared you.
2: I've, I've been in four car crashes. I don't think I've ever been scared at work. I think I've had some serious adrenaline rushes. I think that I have, I take it back. I take that back. I don't know if this is what you're looking for, but this, this is, this is what comes to mind. I did see Pete now, remember I told you my daughter was a preemie, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, two and a half months in the NICU, literally every day was life or death. What crisis is she going to have next? Not knowing if I've ever was ever going to get to bring her home, not knowing if she was going to survive. So to say that I brought home a baby that I valued their life would be in a ginormous understatement. I can tell you, I have never taken my daughter for granted ever because I am too grateful to have her. And I know how much she's gone through to be here. Okay. So with that said, she was a, ooh, not even a year old. She was six months old when this happened, give or take, she was less than a year old. And I had a call of 11 year old girl having a seizure. And I got to, and we weren't far and I had a trainee with me. and He was a good trainee actually. And I, and I went to the, and we went to the call and she was unresponsive and we started CPR and I was doing chest compressions. He was doing, well, this is back when we did mouth to mouth. Damn it. Sometimes y'all take forever to get there. And that was one of those times, or at least it seems like it, you know what I mean? It may not really, but it feels like it, but you know, we got the call that she was having a seizure. We didn't get a call you know, and the call, it never said anything about not breathing or, or anything. And, and apparently you guys didn't get that information either. The only reason we got there so fast is we were literally just around the corner. So it was like, oh, it's right there. Let's go. So we get there and we run in and she's not responsive. We check her vitals. We start doing CPR. We, we bring her back. We get a pulse and then we lose her again. So we started CPR again. We did that three times and y'all finally walked in the door. I was pissed. Uh, and, and I, and I'm not, I think, I think looking back, I don't think I was really pissed. I think it was the adrenaline probably, you know, cause I was like, damn it, where the hell have y'all been? Cause in my eyes, this is a kid, you know, this isn't some crackhead or heroin addict. This is a, this is a kid. And we got to save her i mean that's and i know y'all feel the same way i'm 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 certain of it i mean I think i think everybody does in this line of work you'll go above and beyond for the kids uh y'all transported her to the hospital we ended up going she was put on life support uh, on a breathing machine and the doctor that got called over because y'all didn't there wasn't enough time to take her to the actual children's hospital y'all took her to the closest hospital which is protocol right mm-hmm. so they brought over the specialist at the children's hospital to come evaluate her. And it was the same doctor that had treated my daughter. So I knew him and I was already in that, you know, life is too precious. I know what my daughter went through and I wanted this, I wanted this little girl to make it, the doc came out and he said, um, that we did a good job and that we bought her time so that her family could say goodbye. And that wasn't what I wanted to hear. I got upset with him and I, and I think I did that because I felt like I personally knew him because I got to know him because of when my daughter was in the hospital. So I felt like I I had that kind of a relationship with him, that I could yell at him. I didn't like make a scene or anything, but I was pretty firm with, you know, what are you talking about? You know, you, you will, whatever's wrong, fix it, you know, can't you just fix it? And he's like, there's, there's no fix for this. She had suffered she had been getting a lot of um, her, we went up finding out later was that she had been having a lot of um, problems with, um, I guess, getting pneumonia for no reason. It just really some bizarre symptoms and they kept doing testing on it. And what they ended up finding out and the parents hadn't even gotten the results yet was that she had some sort of rare degenerative brain disease where her brain was literally like, degenerating inside of her inside of her head and there was no cure for it and what happened that day was that she had literally drowned in her own saliva she had lost the ability to swallow so all of her body fluids were going into her lungs which is why she was chronically having pneumonia and lung problems because she wasn't swallowing her saliva it was going into her lungs she and it was like the involuntary reflexes is what it was affecting mostly. So that was basically, and, and what was what was heartbreaking is the parents were looking desperately for answers and they hadn't even got them yet. And and the doctors like it honestly wouldn't have made a difference because there's literally, there's nothing we can do for this. There's, there's no cure. You just, all you did was buy time for her family to properly say goodbye. That hurt. I mean, that really, really hurt because I had never even heard of anything like that before. And I'm thinking after everything I've gone through with my daughter, she's out of the hospital, she's starting to thrive. And then something like this could still happen. It, that scared me. That was really scary because I felt like with my daughter, we were already through the woods and to think that, you know, you take a perfectly healthy child and all of a sudden something happens and they're gone. And it just scared that, that when I went, and I remember going in the bathroom in the emergency room and I just, I just bawled my eyes out. I mean, I just, I just cried. It was really weird because um, that was a night that I remember thinking if I'm going to fall apart on every call that somebody dies, I don't think I can do this anymore. That was, that was one time that I thought maybe this, I was already worried about something happening to me and orphaning my child. Now I'm worried about all the stuff that I see because I'm, I'm every, every time it happens, I put my child in that, in that what if this was my kid scenario? That didn't good. And it was ironic because when, when I got back in, I got to the office at the end of the shift was the night that the news came in that the transfer I had put in for, I got and they had a goodbye cake for me and they threw me a little celebration because I was leaving patrol and I was going to the specialty unit that I had put in for, which um, was much more suitable to being a single mom. That was a very good decision. And that change couldn't have come at a better time it literally came at the end of that shift that night and that's one of those things where i'm like god does everything in his own time because i probably if i had stayed in patrol i don't know and i had to handle any more calls like that that would have uh that would have probably made me made me walk away i'm glad i didn't but that that scared me that but as far as like bad guys scared I've gotten scared after the fact I've gotten scared when it's all said and done, but when I'm in the moment of those gnarly calls, the bad guy calls, I think our training takes over.
1: Yeah.
2: You know, I think our, just our, just your training kicks in and you just, you, 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 it, you just do what you got to do. And then later I look back and go, Ooh, that could have really like, but I look at, I look at those as more as like learning moments. Like, you know, we got lucky. Let's learn from it. And let's like, maybe if that ever happens again, let's maybe do it a little bit differently. I think we all do that though. Like I said,
1: I just wanted to hear your story.
2: My story is I, I don't like child deaths and I know nobody does. I mean, that, that's an obvious statement, but I think that, well, that was, that was what triggered my PTSD. It was a child death. What the straw that broke the camel's back for me when I, when I went into that deep depression that I told you about, it it was a child death. It was one too many child deaths and it just it broke me i couldn't i couldn't uh and it was a perfect storm because like i said i was juggling a couple other traumatic events that it it was like something bad happened and before i could recover from it something else punched me in the face and i couldn't and then something else punched me in the face and then the fourth in the face was the was the child death and i just that was it that was it i I broke you know i think and i say everybody's got their breaking points that was mine but it made me face my demons it made me face all the shit that i crammed down in my head it made me deal with it which definitely made me stronger and and i think that's what's weird because i say i say it in my book you know for all my life everybody's told me oh you're so strong oh you're so strong you've been through so much oh you're so strong and i never felt it never felt it i thought you guys if you only knew me i as i'm Fucked up, you know. I mean, sorry. I know I'm fucked up, you know. And and I joke about it. I go, yeah, I know, I know I'm a hot mess. And I'll tell my supervisors, I know I'm a pain in the ass, you know, I'm high maintenance, I get it. But the ones, the ones that have taken the time to really get to know me, we end up with a fantastic relationship. Yeah. But then there's the one that here thinks the grapevine. Oh, she's a pain in the ass or, oh, she's high maintenance or, oh, she's got too much drama. Dude, I would gladly undo the drama. I would gladly give my drama away. I don't go looking for it. This shit just happens, right? (laughs) It just happens. I had a boss once and she nicknamed me Black Cloud Follows. (laughs) she's like, God, if you wasn't for bad luck, you wouldn't have any. I'm like, tell me about it. So uh, it's made for an interesting life and now an interesting book. So,
1: and you can buy your book on your website plus yep. Amazon. That's where I got it.
2: Yeah. It's uh it's on my website, uh, courageously dot broken.com. Don't forget the hyphen or you're going to get the wrong website. And that lady's blog is not mine. So courageously hyphen broken.com. It is available on Amazon, Kindle. It is also available for download on Nook and iPhone is working on it. They're having some technical issues because of the pixelation in some of the pictures. It's a technical issue that's being worked out, I'm told. It can be ordered through any bookstore, like you know your Barnes and Nobles, your Books and Millions and whatnot. Um, but if somebody orders from me directly, it'll come signed for the same price. Yeah. So.
1: Well, that's, that's my next step. Will you write something in there special for me? Of course I will.
2: <laughs> of course I will.
1: This has been awesome talking with you yesterday and today, and and I feel like we've got quite a few more conversations in our future.
2: A buddy of mine uh, that I served with knew I was in trouble, and he called me and said, "He's yours. Come get him." Wow! So it's in the book, but this this one right here. That's why I say, yeah, I'm like I believe. Let me pitch this really quick. I believe that if if somebody's a dog person and they've got PTSD, truly the best medicine is what you see in my lap right now. Yeah. Because they know when you're having a bad day. They, they feel it. They sense it. And they will distract you. They will make you laugh. And see, he knows I've had a bad. He's been on me. That's why you've heard him. He's been on me since I got home because he knew I was upset when I got home. They know it. They feel it. And they will make you laugh and they will give you unconditional love. I I don't know what I would do without him. I mean, he's, he's truly my best. He's my best buddy. It's, he drives me crazy sometimes, but I I wouldn't trade him for the world. You know. So I but I, st- I I'm a huge advocate for service dogs for 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 PTSD. I can sit here and tell you, scientifically speaking, it has been proven how incredible what these dogs can do for human beings i mean they are they are the man's bed friend is not just a cliche i mean it is it is it is real they you know every creature on this earth has a purpose and i genuinely believe dogs purpose is is for humans they're for her, here for us and i am a big believer in therapy dogs as well you know in law enforcement we've seen children who've been um sexually abused um and gone through hurt, human you know victims of human trafficking and there's all kinds of studies that when we interview these these victims and we give them a therapy dog while they're being interviewed, the chemicals that are released in their brain allow them to bring down their walls and get comfortable so that they can tell their story that needs to be told so these bad people can be can be put away. it has been it has been medically statistically proven what these dogs can do for us, and there's so much more that we don't know. I mean, we know they're they're now being used for diabetes, epilepsy. Um, they can sense seizures before they come. They can, and and I know for a fact, and that's why they're recognizing them as a service dog for PTSD because they can pick up when a veteran or someone with PTSD is having anxiety or or is about to go to a bad place. They can distract them, get their thought process off whatever it is that's troubling them. And, um, and I've seen countless interviews with veterans who said, you know, I was, I had a gun in my mouth. I was fixing to do it. And my dog stopped me. My dog reminded me that he needed me and he kept me around. It, there's, that, there's countless stories like that. So I am a, I'm a firm, firm believer in in these dogs and and what they can do for us. So that's, that's a big thing. And that's one of, uh, that's one of the nonprofits that I'm donating to. Um, it's called, it's a it's an agency out of Texas called Good Canine Academy, and they train um, service dogs for the sole purpose of PTSD, and then they donate them. So they're doing really, really good things out there in Texas, and, and Boot Campaign is another uh, nonprofit that I'm donating to. They, do, uh, they treat veterans with TBIs, PTSD, um, spinal injury, I mean, pretty much any kind of combat injury you can think of, they've got a, 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 a contract with a state-of-the-art facility somewhere in the country. You know, and then I've made a lot of really good contacts like the one I told you about in Montana with Jesse for first responders. Then we've got one right here locally. Um, his name is Doug Monda. He's a retired SWAT guy, and he runs a nonprofit organization called um, survive first. And Doug saves lives on a regular basis where he'll get a phone call that a first responders in crisis somewhere. He jumps on a plane. He flies to wherever they are out west doesn't matter. And he escorts them to one of these retreat locations, treatment facilities that are designed solely for first responders. So you're not going off to the mental hospital like you're terrified of. You're treated with dignity. You're escorted by a brother. You get to the facility where you're welcomed and you're there with people just like you. And they're like, they're like retreats. They're nice, but they're, they've got the, the legit professional help that they need, but without the embarrassment and shame that they're afraid of. So there's lots of, lots of organizations out there. I wish they got a lot more attention, but that's up to us. You know, that's, that's, that's our job now is to get the word out, to let others know, Hey, listen, don't be afraid to ask for help. Don't, don't be afraid of going to the, before it gets to that point where you got to be Baker acted, ask for the help in advance and go to one of these retreats that were designed just for people like you. Right. So you don't have to deal with all that embarrassment.
1: I've actually got a whole page on my website dedicated to mental health resources and specifically the IAFF, the International Association of Firefighters, has their center of excellence. That is what you're talking about, a retreat that's geared specifically for the treatment of PTSD and and firefighters.
2: Yep. Yeah. Y'all definitely, I mean, like I said, there's tons of help out there, but it doesn't get the exposure that it needs. It needs a lot more exposure. And that's where I think our leadership needs to step up a little bit. And when I want to say our, I mean, everybody, some agencies are, and some, for some reason aren't. And I don't know why I think that's still taboo and they don't want to, I don't know. I can't figure it out, but I, I, I would much rather see a first responder go get help before they get to that point where, you know, 9 getting called and they're getting sent to the mental hospital. You know, there's some really good places out there.
1: Thank you again. This has been an awesome experience for me, and I'm sure uh, whoever listens to this is, is going to get a lot out of, out of it as well. And I and I can't recommend your book enough. I like I said, I'm halfway through it. I started reading it last night. It's wow. I, so thank you,
2: thank you so much. I really appreciate that.
1: So I'd love to have you back on uh, sometime in the near future. Uh, cool.
2: Let me come back on after I retire, and we'll call it unfiltered all
0: right <laughs> thank you for listening to this episode of from embers to excellence please visit hallenbachleadership.com for additional content dave's goal is to add value to as many people as possible so if he can be of any assistance to you or someone you know please connect with him via email or on one of his social media accounts linked on the home page of his website remember Our failures don't define us unless we let them and the only true measure of a leader is the success of their team.